When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. I'm Daniel Shea, your host for episode 83 of the podcast. Today I'll be talking with Barbara Sarneka, Professor of Cognitive Sciences and Associate Dean of Research and Graduate Studies for Social Sciences, University of California, Irvine. Her book, The Writing Workshop, Write More, Write Better, Be Happier in Academia, was self-published in 2019, and it's open access. See this show's blog post to get your copy right now. The developmental editor on Barbara's book was Michael Dillon Rogers, whom I'll also link in the blog post of today's episode. When you move through the landscape of writing studies and writing guidance, move from one place there to some other place also there, you cross borders, sometimes need even to pass gates. And this has always troubled me, the sorts of categorical distinctions you meet when moving through the writing landscape. For instance, during a person's undergraduate years, writing support typically foregrounds the writer themselves, so that it's not uncommon to be hearing the terms writing process or self-expression. On the other hand, however, when the same undergraduate begins a master's thesis, or at the very latest a doctoral thesis, the terms change and become things like ease of reading or audience analysis. And it bothers me that you've got people in the one place on the landscape of writing saying that it's all about the writer, but people in some other place on that landscape saying it's all about the reader. And then, of course, there's those who'll stake their claim for the content being prime, and still others who'll stake their claim for the style being prime. Personally, I find all that claiming of primacy rather bothersome. But I've never really been able to locate amongst all these writing landscape places the exact spot where the true common ground lies. Ground that is trodden on by all, yes, but in fact noticed by very few. I too had only a vague sense, an inkling of where that was, until I read the writing workshop, today's book. The common ground, it turns out, is everywhere. The reader, and the writer, and the writing, and the content, and the form, all have equal primacy. It just depends on where a person finds themselves in any particular project, and just as well it depends on who that person is, on what that person has to say, and on who they want to say it to. All these places belong on the map of writing, and very few written projects will come off, if the projects have not been passed through those places. So to say that written communication is about the writer, that's true. To say, though, that written communication is about the reader, well, that's true too. In short, and to bring my point here to a head, I think that it's safe to say that the writing, the going on of this manifestation of thought, this writing is generally about the writer. But I'd say on top of that, whatever has been written... That is generally about the reader. For me, that pretty much sums the matter up. 
And it's a view of things, I think, that levels the landscape so that we can see that communication in print is never just occurring in any one place. No single one aspect of textual production or text product has primacy. This insight, if I might call it that, I have today's guest, Barbara Sanecker, to thank. Barbara writes in her book, The Writing Workshop, how she was once contacted by a colleague looking to teach graduate writing. And so the colleague asked Barbara for some guidance. Barbara happily complied, telling her about the writing workshop which readers come to know through this very book. Then, and I quote here, But when I started explaining what we actually do in our workshop, quiet writing time, checking in, feedback forum, and so forth, she was taken aback. This was not what she had had in mind. Talking with her, I realized how much our workshop has changed over the years. My friend was envisioning the workshop I started out with, the one where we asked what makes good writing good. She wanted to talk about sentence structure and word choice. I view those problems the same way I view Sudoku puzzles. They are small, self-contained, fun, and easy to solve once you know how. I still have fun fixing bad sentences, and the last few chapters of this book are devoted to nuts and bolts fixes for common writing problems. But I no longer see those mechanical problems as the place where academic writers need the most help. Today I think the real value of the writing workshop is in helping people manage bigger writing problems. How to find time to write how to overcome writing anxiety, and above all, how to work hard enough to be successful without destroying your own mental and physical health in the process. End quote. When I read that, it got me thinking about my bother concerning what is what and who is who in writing. Barbara's words, to my ears, sound like a common ground excavator putting all of us who work in written communication right there, next to the machine, shovels in hand, seeing what the thing is turning up. So let's begin today's episode. Barbara Saneka, The Writing Workshop. Hi, Barbara. Welcome to Scholarly Communication. Hi, Daniel. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. I'm humbled and impressed. Well, okay. I, I hope you still have voice left, though, <laughs> because um, I'd, I'd like to hear some of your thoughts, actually, on just that. I mean, perhaps it's a nice place to begin. I mean, this idea I play with in the intro is in part also going on in your chapter, The Practice of Writing, in particular, where you distinguish revision for thinking purposes from revision for communication purposes. Do you, do you see that connection there? Yeah, well, I think you're, you know, I really enjoyed hearing the introduction you just um, read, because I, I certainly agree with everything you said, but I hadn't thought about it that way myself. So it's funny to hear you um, produce new insights or new synthesis and attribute them to me, because I feel like I'm learning them from you. <laughs> um, but yeah, of course, um, I think what you've said is, is absolutely captures the way I see the writing process um, in that writing is thinking. So the first job you have uh, as a scholar or as a writer is to kind of figure out what your argument is and figure out what you want to say. And writing is a really good way to do that. It's really a misconception for people to think that they 
have to figure out what they're going to say before they start writing. And so people will often say, well, I can't write because I don't know what the argument is yet, or I can't, I can't write because I haven't finished the study. And I have to, you know, we have this idea that you do the study, you collect all the data, you analyze the data, and then you write it. But in fact, um, writing is, uh, I, I, I think that writing is a form of thinking, only it extends our cognitive capacities. So it, 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 overcomes the limits that we have on working memory um, so that what I mean by that is when you're speaking, you can only remember a certain amount of information at a time. You can only manipulate a certain limited amount of information at one time. But when you're writing, you put it on the page and it stays there and it doesn't move and it doesn't change. And it's right there uh, until you need to come back to it. So by putting thoughts on the page and rearranging them and looking at them and evaluating and trying again, uh, we really extend our ability to represent information by just orders of magnitude. And so writing is like thinking, but better. <laughs> it's like the thinking you do in your head, but better, augmented uh, with this external representation. And so I think writing is a really important way to figure out what the argument is, to figure out what you think, to figure out what you think your study found or shows. And then, of course, the second part of the process, once you have figured out what you believe and what your argument is and what you think, then you have to translate that into some kind of language that other people can understand. So I think of the early part of revision as for the writer's sake, figuring out what your argument is, and the later part of revision as being for the reader's sake, figuring out how to communicate it to the reader. Yeah, and this idea that writing is thinking, and then on the other hand, also though writing is communicating, um, I mean, that's that's what comes out so clearly in what you're saying. And, and it's what I was trying to you know, give just a slightly different illustration of in the, in the introduction so that we don't get bogged down in if you're writing, you're doing this and uh, there's, you know, no other options really going on. Um, even even what you say there about writing is thinking has has caused um, in at least in writing studies uh, and also in uh, university pedagogies a number of problems because people feel that well if somebody isn't able to write well then the consequence would be that we're saying they can't think well and again this this yeah and this this is again though one of the problems the blocks these categories that we we wrap ourselves up in which I find is limiting, unfortunately, right? Yeah, that's very unfortunate. Yeah, I would never, I would never, by writing is thinking, I would never want to imply that people who have trouble writing have trouble thinking. <laughs> um, what I, the way I think of it is, um, because I'm a cognitive scientist, I think of both thinking and writing as representing information. And I think that, um, Writing is a way of representing information that has certain advantages over just representing it mentally. So I don't, I don't, I don't at all mean it like if you aren't good at writing, then you aren't good at thinking or something like that. What I mean is like um, writing can do the tasks for us that thinking can do, but better. <laughs> so writing. Writing can help you figure out your argument better than just sitting, closing your eyes and pondering your argument, just because we can handle so much more information when we're writing. Yeah, no, I, I, I entirely understand how you meant it. And that's part of the reason I draw attention to it, because I, I feel that, that, that that's a message that needs to get out, that writing is indeed thinking or it's, it's in, a, 
it's an affordance, as uh, Bill Cope and, and, and Mary Calanzis refer to the different forms that we use to make meaning. It, it offers certain affordances to us, as, as you're saying. I mean, I love this. And this goes right into one of the central points of uh, your writing practice, um, the so-called ninja writing, which I, I would love to, for you to expand upon in a moment. But I mean, it goes right into the central idea of, in a way, if just as you've described, you're using the writing to figure out what you mean and explore ideas using its affordances, it's like you're making your mind your daily companion in a way that you wouldn't be able to be across from it or be in touch with it if you weren't constantly bringing it up and making it apparent to yourself. Um, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. The, writing the ninja, is very... The ninja writing. <laughs> Uh, okay, so ninja writing is what we call just the practice of writing little and often, in particular learning to write in little spaces of time, like 10 minutes or 15 minutes uh, during the day. And we, you know, ninja is kind of a silly way to call it, you know, it's kind of a silly term for it. But the idea is that it's sort of sneaky and stealthy, and you can like slip it into your day, it can, you know, like ninjas were sneaky and stealthy and sneak around. So the that is the idea of learning to write little and often is it's just a really really valuable skill to cultivate it's just a very valuable thing to practice because the main misconceptions that people have about writing at least the the phd students and early career scholars that i work with um all of the main misconceptions that people have are diminished or uh, taken away or completely destroyed by when you learn to write little and often, when you just practice writing little and often. So the, those misconceptions are the, one of them I mentioned before, I can't start writing until I know what I'm going to say. Another one is I can't do any useful writing unless I have an hour free or two hours free or something like people think they need a big block of time. Um, and the other one is, I can't write unless I feel inspired. I can't do any writing unless I feel like it. I just have to feel the inspiration. And uh, what we do in the writing workshop often is challenge people to find, to write for 10 minutes, you know, uh, every day, find a time, write for 10 minutes, don't write for an hour, really just write for 10 minutes, like set a timer for 10 minutes and open your document and see how much you can do in 10 minutes. And what people what people who are in the habit of kind of binge and drought writing tend to think. Uh, so by binge and drought, I mean they won't write anything for a long time and then they will do a whole lot of writing at once, like before a deadline. Maybe they'll write for 10 hours before a grant you know proposal is due, but then they won't they won't have touched it for two months before that. Um, first they say, well, I won't be able to do anything in 10 minutes because I take the first 45 minutes just remembering what this argument was about. Like I have to read what I was doing before and it takes me 45 minutes just to figure out where I was and remember what I was doing. It turns out that if you work on it a little bit every day, that's not true at all. <laughs> if you worked on it yesterday, it doesn't take 45 minutes to remember what you were doing. You can open it and remember it immediately. Uh, People also use the idea that they don't have an hour free as an excuse not to write because the fact is getting started is difficult. It's psychologically difficult. There's a barrier to opening the computer or opening the document and doing something. So 
I actually think it's much more beneficial to, if you're a person who wants to write more, I think it's much more beneficial to try to write for four 15 minute increments in a day than to try to write for an hour all at once in a day. Because if you write for four 15 minute increments, that's four times that you are overcoming the barrier to getting started. And the more you do that, the more comfortable you get just opening it and starting, uh, the easier it becomes, the easier it becomes to write. So that's why we are big proponents of ninja writing in the writing workshop. This is sort of challenging people to find little, little periods of time, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes. And it's really transformative. If you start practicing that, if you start trying to write in those small increments every day, writing gets a whole lot easier because, you know, starting gets a whole lot easier. Yeah, that's that's what I love about it is that it, it, it gives you a different behavioral approach to the whole thing so that you enable yourself to, to write more. But it also shows you that, you know, and, and this is something that you make also very, very clear in the book. And one of the things I really love is that you show that there's different kinds of writing. And again, that brings me a little bit back to the intro, but it also brings me to the page where you say, well, what do we define as writing? And I mean, it, this is just characteristic of the book. I mean, section for section, it just starts to expand your view on what it is that you're actually doing. And that that is something also that I would love to hear your comments on. I mean, it's something that I've seen was clearly missing, felt was missing, the definition of what do you call writing? And yet I've never seen anyone actually then go and do it like you just did. <laughs> <laughs> well, um this is great. I love being interviewed by you, Daniel. Let's do this every week. You're so complimentary. Um, thank you. That's how I so, get guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, well, one thing that we do in the workshop is we keep a shared daily writing log. So this is an online, like a Google spreadsheet or an online shared spreadsheet where everybody in the group sort of uh, lists at the beginning of the week what their goals, their writing goals are for the week. And then every day we log on and it says, did you write today or not? And, you know, what were your writing goals for today? And did you write today or not? And so inevitably, when you introduce that, the question arises, someone says, well, what counts as writing? You know, if I'm going to fill this in saying, did I write today or not? How do I know what to count as writing? And our um, general rule in the workshop is anything that you have to do to produce uh, publications that you will be an author on or grant proposals that will fund, you know, grant funding proposals that will fund work, your own research, um, counts as writing. <laughs> so especially for, for investigators, you know, for PhD students and, and faculty, um, there's a lot of steps to the research process that don't look like writing, right? So uh, collecting data, writing code for analyses, making figures, um, all that kind of stuff. We allow people in the workshop to count that as writing. If that's, if that's what needs to happen on the project that is closest to publication. So we shoot for, we shoot for working one hour a day on the project that's closest to publication. So if the project that you have that's closest to publication is in the analysis phase, then maybe you need to spend your hour, you know, analyzing those data and you can count that as writing. Um, but we caution people. We have a lot of conversations about sort of being honest with yourself uh, and, 
and being not kidding yourself if what you're doing is not writing and you're trying to do it to avoid writing, right? So, um, so for example, an early stage of projects for doctoral students is literature review, reading papers and books that are relevant to their project and taking notes on them and maybe writing summaries, maybe writing a literature review. For some people, that is a miserable, monotonous task, and they absolutely should count it as writing because it's difficult and they have to force themselves to do it and they should get credit for doing that for an hour and they should put it on the writing log. Um, for other people, that's very pleasant. They enjoy reading other stuff and taking notes on it, and they actually use it to avoid other parts of the research. They use it to avoid <laughs> drafting a, a manuscript or to avoid you know, revising the, looking at the comments from the reviewers or something. So we say, you know, be honest with yourself. If you're doing this because it's easy for you and you're using it to avoid the parts that are hard, then don't count it as writing. <laughs> count writing, we count writing the hard, the hard parts as writing. <laughs> the things that you're tempted to skip. <laughs> and that's, that's a lovely definition. And um, I mean, it, it makes me think of uh, Verlin uh, Klinkenborg, who um, uh, has written a lot about writing and is himself a fantastic writer. And uh, he was talking actually just about the topic you brought up earlier on your previous point about inspiration and, and you know, being in the mood and all these things. And he said along these lines, it's not a direct quote, that quote, but if you accept that the work is difficult, then things are going just as they should. So it's sort of like a handy rule of thumb to know whether or not you're writing, I suppose. Yeah. 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 We really, there's a lot of, we really go back and forth a lot. There's a lot of discussion about what counts as writing because people worry all the time that if it, that whatever they're doing, maybe this isn't really writing. So there are folks who I know for, for me at my stage of career, I, I tend to narrow my definition of writing to be things that everybody would recognize like drafting or revising <laughs> drafting manuscripts or grant proposals or book chapters or revising them uh, and I try to do some of that I try to do an hour of that every day and then the other parts of research like designing studies and collecting data and analyzing data uh, I don't count as writing for myself but for PhD students, sometimes they don't have a manuscript to write yet. You know, sometimes they're in the middle of designing their experiment. And so that can count as writing. And at a deep level, I feel like uh, writing is representing information, as we talked about at the beginning of this hour. And um, so anything that involves sort of creating external representations of information for the, for the sake of the work you're doing counts to me plausibly as writing. So definitely making figures uh, for papers counts as writing in my book. Um, definitely revising. People often ask if revising counts as writing. Absolutely, 100%. Um, and then taking notes on literature, writing your own thoughts, your own analyses of how you're going to build on this literature definitely counts as writing. Uh, one that we go back and forth about is code, writing code, debugging code to analyze your data. That's one of those that's like a borderline case for us. If you enjoy writing code and you love it and you could spend eight hours doing it to avoid writing the manuscript, then no, you don't get to count it as writing. <laughs> but if you, if you find it difficult and you have to force yourself to do it, then okay, you can count it as writing. But this brings me back to this main idea that, I mean, the, 
you've just given us some theoretical background and also some social background. I mean, you talk about the writing workshop and the group and how you guys discuss these things and figure out from person to person, really, you know, what is going to count as writing. Um, and in fact, I do want to uh, delve into the, the setup of the workshop and your experience at the workshop in a moment, but just, just to sort of close off this this topic, perhaps, of definitions. Um, there's also this wonderful pragmatism, I find, to it. You you talk when you're uh, writing about planning your time, which is also a very enlightening chapter about, I'm quoting here, if you are evaluated based on your research output, and then there's this wonderful parentheses, which means writing, <laughs> then all of the non-writing, non-research work that you are doing every day counts for little. Yeah. And that is one of the reasons why it becomes uh, you just have this this knack for, you know, hitting the nails square in the head and, and, and making us think about the idea that it really matters to take this time and figure out what is my writing? Because we just we just sort of throw that word out there, you know, write every day. Yeah, well, mm -hmm. do what every day? Yeah, yeah. And it's really I'm always surprised when I hear. um graduate students or junior faculty say they just don't have time to write. I, I understand in the case of junior faculty, because you're often teaching courses for the first time, at least in, in the American system, you're usually, um, you have courses, you have classes to teach, and then that, that can easily take up all of your time. But you're actually at a university like mine that's primarily emphasizing research, your promotion and tenure decisions that when your work is evaluated, it's really all about your research and publications. So uh, unfortunately, it doesn't create a great educational experience for our students, but the, the incentive structure for the faculty is definitely to focus on their research and on their writing, not on teaching better. Um, but Teaching is just easier. It's just easier to spend time preparing lectures than to than to write your own research. It's it's right. Research is hard. <laughs> Coming up with original things to say and new innovative work is really hard. It's really intellectually challenging. And teaching is much easier. Teaching there's content you can think about how to present it, and also there's social accountability with the teaching and with service and with other things we do. It's like if you don't prepare a good lecture, you'll have to face, you know, I'm teaching an intro psych course right now with 400 students. So if I prepare a bad lecture, I'm embarrassed in front of 400 students to see them staring at me quizzically, looking puzzled. And I'm thinking, this isn't clear. This isn't good. It's very tempting for me to spend all my time working on those lectures. But that would be foolish if I were a new assistant professor, because my promotions and tenure decisions will not depend on the quality of those lectures, right? It'll depend on, on my writing. And so uh, also with the PhD students, they can spend a lot of time doing other things that aren't getting their dissertation written, not getting their research done, not getting their advancement done, not getting their dissertation proposal, not getting their dissertation finished. And I'm always baffled when they say, I just don't have time. I just don't have time to write. That just doesn't make sense to me. Like we all have 24 hours a day and seven days a week. We spend them the way we think is important. I support everybody sleeping for eight hours. I understand if you have young children, they take a certain amount of time to take care of. But other than that, you know, your next priority should be writing, should be your research. Yeah, and you kind of programmatically start off the book with, you know, that wonderful sentence. 
research is writing. <laughs> I mean, I have to say that was like, I stopped at the period for a second. I was like, yeah, <laughs> because, because that, that in a sense, you know, carries across your message, which you've just given us now. Um, sure. There's a whole bunch of things going on during the day and you're going to do a number of them and so on. Um, but if you realize the, you know, the, the gravity of the situation. And if you actually make that equal sign in between, you know, the research equals writing connection, then, I mean, you could almost ask yourself, well, do I ever really leave my research? You know, I mean, I think there's a fair amount of people out there who, you know, have dedicated their careers to academia, who, you know, are quite passionate, clearly about what they're studying. I mean, I've heard biologists tell me that I couldn't imagine my life without biology. So it's like, you know, um, well, then get writing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, for sure. The, I think the, the main misconception, actually, the very first misconception that we run into again and again and again, from particularly from people in STEM fields, so science, you know, biological sciences, natural sciences, engineering, um, the, the more quantitative the field is, the more likely they are to say this, is that they just don't think that, that writing is required in their um in their field, right? So they'll say, well, writing isn't very important. Like I'm a biologist, <laughs> but they imagine that writing is somehow for people in the humanities, or it's like, it's like for playwrights or fiction writers or something. But, but if whenever anybody fails to be productive as a scientist, it's because they're not writing, right? It's because they're not publishing manuscripts or they're not producing funding proposals that are getting funded. It's not because they don't have enough ideas for experiments or because they didn't collect enough data or because they didn't learn to analyze the data properly. Those things are all kind of trivially easy. And that's why we can subcontract them to graduate students or the statistical consulting center or other people to do them for us. You can't get somebody else to think for you and you can't get somebody else to write for you. Um, and I'm always amazed when people in, you know, engineering or natural sciences or biological sciences say like, well, I don't have anything to write writing. We don't, I don't have to write until my fifth year when I write up my dissertation. And I just think, what do you, how, how are you processing ideas? How are you taking in information? How are you developing your theories? Like, what, what do you mean you don't have anything to write? I was once, uh, walking and walking my dogs in the neighborhood. And uh, I have a colleague who's a professor of mechanical engineering, and he has a dog the same age as my dogs. It's friends with my dogs. And so when we see each other out walking, we walk together and the dogs are very happy walking as a pack. And uh, I was asking him because mechanical engineering, right? It's a very quantitative field. I said to him, so how much um, is writing a big issue in your field? And he said, I don't, I don't know what you mean. He's Italian. His name is Lorenzo. So he was like, I don't know what you mean. And I said, um, well, you know, do you like, do you ever submit a paper and you get a revise and resubmit from the journal and then it just sits on your desk for like six months because you don't get around to revising and resubmitting it? And he said, oh, yes, it is the biggest problem. I said, yeah, do you ever collect a bunch of data and analyze it, but then like you just can't quite get yourself to write the paper? And he was like, yes, all the time. <laughs> he said, I had to make a rule in my lab that the students are not allowed to even turn on the machine until we have a hypothesis about the data we are collecting. So it's like, it doesn't matter how quantitative your field is. Writing is thinking. If you're not if you're not writing, right, if you're not writing down what your hypotheses are, what your design is, what your 
analysis plan is going to be or writing up your results or writing up the manuscript, you know, that's, you're not doing it, right? It's, and when people, when people flunk out of PhD programs, when they fail to complete their PhDs, it's virtually always because they did not produce the writing that was required. It's not that they didn't have good ideas for experiments or that they couldn't collect enough data or that they didn't, you know, they didn't analyze the, the statistical, they didn't use the right statistical tests or they used Bayesian analyses when they should have used frequentist analyses or vice versa. It's that they didn't produce the advancement paper or they didn't produce the concentration exam or they didn't produce the dissertation proposal or they didn't produce the dissertation, right? That's, that's what it comes down to. So it, yeah. it always baffles me when people say, oh, writing's not very important in my field. I just think, what, what field is that? <laughs> what, <laughs> what academic doesn't have to produce work? It's all writing. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, I mean, it, it, it's so spot on. I mean, it's, it's one of these things that uh, in a different context you bring up, you talk about the mismatch between what we're teaching students and then what we expect of them or what will be expected of them. And I, I would imagine besides the different disciplinary cultures, which are clearly playing a role here, I mean, the mathematics or the engineers and so on, they're, they're you know, they're, they're thinking in numbers and they're, I mean, I've even had uh, computer scientists tell me that that's actually the challenge, you know, you're, you're dealing in code and that has to be translated into language and so on. I mean, these, even people who are aware of the necessity of, of the communicative, uh, not even just the communicative, the understanding aspect, as you said, the list of results and what do they mean. But I think another aspect that's going on here is, you know, the, the division between humanities slash social sciences on the one end and the, uh, you know, the natural sciences, the STEM fields on the other, where, you know, the, the automatic sort of gut reaction that people have is on the one side is text and on the other side there's no text you know what i mean mm -hmm. uh, yeah 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 of i course would imagine there... that some of that's yeah playing a role there yeah i think you're right i think maybe just the word writing connotes i don't know connotes uh they imagine their high school writing class uh which was maybe all about syntactic fluency and you know interesting sentences and big words and um I mean, it's true that um, I think it's true that in some fields um, there's the, the there's a what's considered great writing um, is a lot more complicated and flowery and artistic and like when I was working with uh, Michael Dillon Rogers, who's the developmental editor for for the book. You know, we had a lot of conversations about what the the writing advice in the book, because the the attitude that my book takes is um, the one that makes sense for my field, which is cognitive sciences, but really makes sense for all STEM fields. So people who are doing sort of quantitative analyses, collecting data, designing experiments, writing grant proposals, writing manuscripts in those fields, typically the problem is you have something very complicated that you're trying to convey and you're trying to make it as clear and simple as possible. So the challenge, the challenge is in communicating what you've done and what you've understood to people. So you're trying to, um, the, the big challenge that you're dealing with is that the reader almost never has the conceptual framework to understand what you've done. So it's kind of like teaching. 
Like you're not just communicating, you're kind of teaching the reader what the concepts are in this area and helping them build up the conceptual framework so that they can understand what you did, like why you did the research you did, why you asked the questions you did, why the results are interesting, kind of like that. And there are fields though that are more interpretive where the they didn't they didn't sort of collect data. They're, it's not like they collected data and now they're reporting the results. They're, they're, the interpretation, the thoughts that they have, the stuff that they're saying is the content, right? That's in, in the humanities, it's often seems to, it's, I don't know, but it seems to me like that's what they're doing, that the writing itself, it's like um, the writing is the content, the writing is the data. They're, all their thoughts are, the, are what they're presenting. And so, so for example, uh, Michael, Michael and I, you know, got in this discussion. There's a part of the book where I have very practical tips on writing clearly from the standpoint that I'm talking about. Like as a scientist, if you've got complicated stuff to convey and the people that you're writing to may not have the conceptual framework to understand what you're saying, then what are ways that you can say it as clearly as possible? And one of the principles is you have one word for one concept, right? So if you're going to refer to something, you pick a word, you use that word all the time. You don't use different words to refer to the same thing because that's confusing because people will think you mean, if you say two different words, they might think you mean two different things. And Michael said, huh, well, because in his background, he comes from a background of philosophy and literary criticism. And he was like, oh, you know, I always try to use different words uh, so that it's more interesting to read, you know, like I use different words to refer to the same concept just to make it sort of aesthetically more pleasing. So his ideal of good writing was more, uh, had more aesthetic considerations. He wanted it to be like more interesting words, less frequent words, interesting sentence structures, longer sentences. Uh, and I, you know, I am all about like short sentences, minimizing demands on working memory, one word for one concept, stuff like that. So it's, I think that is definitely a difference between um, kind of interpretive work and more STEM kind of work. Very much so. And, and yet, as I was listening to the recap of the discussion you and Michael had, I was, I was thinking that um, it's funny that very many people in STEM, though, seem to carry over from those high school days, that last time they were working in creative genres and so on, or having to read them, and will say things to me. I, I work, as my listeners will know, I, I work with scientists and, and uh, help them uh, publish. Um, they'll say things to me like, oh, that doesn't sound nice, or yeah, but I just used that word in the previous sentence and so on. So in a sense, it's like this residue, this this leftover, this baggage from you know, inappropriate, really inappropriate sorts of uh, standards as to what is good writing. Yeah, I guess it depends on your purpose all the time, right? So I think in high school, you know, I have two uh, sons who were recently, one's a senior in, uh, in his last year of high school now, and the other one's at university. So I was kind of paying attention while they were taking classes in high school and being taught how to write. 
And, you know, a lot of the stuff that they were taught in high school, I completely disagree with <laughs> for, for scientific writing. If your goal is to convey content as clearly and understandably and accessibly as possible, then you really want to make things as simple as you can. But that's not always somebody's goal. And what they were having them write in high school was more like, you know, write an essay about what you did this summer. Uh, but it, that might be boring. Maybe what you did this summer is not particularly interesting, right? And so maybe you make it interesting by the way you talk about it, by picking infrequent words and fancy words and having long sentences and playful language stuff. And so you're turning a boring summer into an interesting essay. Um, but for science, that's usually not what we want to do. We usually have plenty of complexity and plenty of difficulty and abstraction in the content itself. And the challenge is to try to communicate that clearly. So we're always looking for ways to make things more concrete, more specific, less complicated. Yeah, no, very much so. Um, and, and, and then we get back to the issue of, well, how well are we training people for these things then? Um, if it is that there's you know enough scientists who are looking back to those sets of ideas as to what good writing is and aren't yeah. really using using yeah. the, you know valuable tools that you're talking about then we're misguiding them well and also yeah it, it's also the case that people um early career scientists especially want to belong to the club right they want to write like they think scientists write <laughs> And so they might use fancy words and fancy sentences because they think it sounds better, right? They, they Maybe they think it sounds smarter sometimes, or they think it sounds more professional, or it sounds like a real scientist. So that's understandable, but probably not helpful. Then there's also the impulse to write something um, defensively. So if you're, you know, when you're writing in academia, it's, it, it's probably the case that, well, if you're going to submit it for review to a journal or to a conference or to a grant, you know, program, people are going to read it. Reviewers are going to read it and they're going to criticize it. And so when you're writing something that you know somebody is going to read critically, uh, you can feel defensive. You can feel worried about the criticism that you're going to get. And you can start writing in a defensive way, you know, like a, like a lawyer. Uh, so instead of saying... You know, so you, let's imagine something simple. I might say, um, my dogs are sleeping. I'm just looking down at the, my dogs are sleeping on the floor next to me right now, right? So I could say, my dogs are, my dogs are asleep on the floor now. But if you are really scared and you're defensive and you're imagining this jerk at the last conference who came up to your poster and yelled at you and said everything you, you thought was wrong, then you start getting really defensive and thinking, well, my my dogs, well, uh, my two dogs, I have two dogs. Uh, maybe you're going to say that I'm claiming that I have a lot of dogs, but I'm not. I only have two. So I'm saying my two dogs. Well, not just two of my dogs. Maybe, now, now you're going to say that I have more dogs, well, but I didn't. I'm, I'm only going to say, so of the, the, I, I, of the two dogs that I own, both of them are sleeping now on the floor near me, you know? And so the language that you could might be very even, you simple. Might even come out with, you might even come out with something like the die-dog duality situation <laughs> yes. yeah, exactly. and so on. Right. Yeah, no, yes. I, see, I see. Yeah. We have a dualistic, we have a canine dyad uh, 
experiencing an altered state of consciousness in the room where I currently sit. Yeah. Yeah, and it feels safer, and you, you you've allowed a buffer to appear. Yeah, between right. Let's right. say the reality you're observing and right. what gets passed on to the reviewer. So yeah, you yeah. feel safer. Maybe I think I think it can be tempting to think that. Um, uh, well, this this sounds cynical. There can be an impulse that if people don't understand what you're saying, they can't criticize you, right? So I, mm -hmm. I often mm -hmm. with new like early career like graduate students and early career um, scholars, you know. They'll, they'll write something in a certain way. We'll be looking at it together and I'll say, well, why not just say this? And they'll say something like, well, that's too, it's so baldly stated. Like they, they feel vulnerable, you know, they feel worried that uh, if you say it super clearly, people might disagree. They might say it's dumb. They might criticize it. Whereas if you say things in a way that's kind of complicated and evasive, then people maybe won't criticize so strongly because maybe they'll wonder if they really understood <laughs> what you said uh but hiding hiding behind complicated and evasive language isn't good for your career in the end i mean i i always you know end up reminding them that there's tons of scientific work out there that is inscrutable and nobody can read it nobody can understand what it says and it just doesn't go anywhere like people aren't required to read your work they're not required to cite it um, and if you read, if you write something that people can understand, some people will like it and agree with you. And some people will dislike it and disagree and criticize it. But th then you're part of the conversation. If you write something that nobody can understand, then nobody will criticize you, but also no one will care and no one will read it. Yeah. I mean, and, and this is again, striking a nail straight on the head, isn't it? Right. <laughs> I mean, there is a, I do notice in some uh, scientists eyes when I'm working with them, this, this like spark of uncomfortableness with the change I might suggest on a sentence because it, it just boldly states something. So, I, I mean, I very mm -hmm. much know what, what you're referring to. And I think that there is also for the early career researcher, that anxiety, and it's almost, almost a moment. It's almost a teaching moment to say, Look, you're using the writing to achieve this own, per you know, this personal purpose that you might have of building up a small defense system. Yeah, that sh that shows you, you know, in a sense that you know, writing has all of these purposes naturally built into it. Discover the yeah. others, see what else yeah. it can do. <laughs> yeah, and and of course, it's not always that, right? So when when people write, when people produce writing, that's really incomprehensible or, you know, difficult to follow, difficult to understand. Sometimes it's because they're being defensive. You know, sometimes it's because they um, don't want to be understood. But, or, you know, cynically, some people say, you just don't have anything to say. And you're trying to make it sound like you have something to say by throwing up a lot of uh, nonsense. But I think that's, those are a minority of cases. Those are relatively rare. The thing you see all the time, just all the time pervasively from from scientists at every stage of their career is uh, the curse of knowledge problem, right? The illusion of transparency kind of problem where they are just writing the manuscript. They're writing about this research topic in the way that they think about it. They really think about it this way at a very high level. So they use um, abstract words and 
concepts that the reader doesn't have, and they use you know language that's abstract and arguments that are very abstract, and it makes sense to the writer because that's the way they're thinking about it. The researcher thinks about this stuff all the time. They think about it at a very high level, and so they write their manuscript at a very high level, and they read it, and it seems perfectly understandable to them, and they really don't they sincerely, genuinely don't know what is going to be understandable to somebody who's not, you know, in their lab, in their, who's not part of the very small subfield of people who think about this all the time. I think that's very much the case. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and, and I agree entirely. It's the more frequent case by far. Yeah. I think what's interesting, though, in that case is the high level thinking, the compressing into 40 blocks of information, yeah. you know, all the knowledge and so on. Um sometimes brings with it the idea that, well, okay, let's sub break down a number of these, you know, let's have Mm -hmm. block 25 A and B, right? And Mm -hmm. so on. And if you start breaking apart blocks so that we see more of the thinking going on, I've nearly almost had the experience with the person I was working with that they notice their own gaps, Mm. that they realize, ah, yeah, block 25 C I'm not quite so sure if that lines up entirely. And and what Mm -hmm. I find is, yes, there's the curse of knowledge, but I think Mm -hmm. there's also the, I haven't written about this enough. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Back to the idea that writing is thinking. When When you have to sit down and lay out your argument step by step, you see gaps in the argument, right? When you have to articulate them, you see places where you've jumped from one thing to another without really thinking through how they would be connected. And when you try to write down how they would be connected, you discover they're not connected. But there's some kind of problem. I, it's like the uh, the underpants gnomes in South Park. Have you seen these? <laughs> in the, in the, the cartoon South Park, there are these underpants gnomes and they have a plan. The phase one is steel underpants. Phase two is a big question mark and phase three is profit. (laughs) So they're like, we're just going to go from, we're going to steal underpants and then something or other and then profit. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's going to (laughs) work. Just give it time. Right. That's going to work. I think Um, what you're describing when you work with scientists is sometimes they discover that, right. They, they're pretty sure that it all fits together, but when they sit down and try to lay it out step by step they see that there's missing there's there's missing pieces yeah yeah and i mean sometimes it's not a major issue other times it turns out to be more major than they thought i mean but the point is is i mean this gets back to your ninja writing and the definition of writing um you're more likely to discover these things if you're just sort of hacking at it all the time if 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 that is your the constant thing you're turning around yeah well and and the other big thing we do is feedback in the in the writing workshop, feedback forum, right? So at every meeting, someone shares just one or two pages of something they're writing and everybody else, we, they put it on Google as a Google Doc. We all, you know, 13 or 15 of us at the same time, read and comment silently on this one or two page um, piece of writing. And then we spend about 10 minutes. We spend about 20 minutes reading and commenting on it and then about 10 minutes discussing it. Um, which works great. We used to do the more common writing workshop thing where somebody would have a whole paper or a whole chapter and would circulate it ahead of time and everyone was supposed to read it and make comments and then we would come to the class and discuss it. But nobody has time. It was very clear that people weren't reading it. (laughs) And so the authors weren't getting good feedback. 
Um, and when we switch to having just one or two pages that we all sit there and read together and comment on in real time, it worked a lot better. And having the written feedback also is great because there's plenty, everybody has time to say everything they want to say. It's not constrained in the way a verbal discussion would be where one person can talk at a time. And so everybody's kind of waiting for their chance to talk and worried that they won't get the chance to say what they want to say. Everybody's putting everything in the comments and suggested changes on the Google Doc and the author gets all that feedback. But what's useful about that is if you are writing about a topic in a way that makes sense to you and maybe to other people in your lab, you know, your doctoral advisor or the person, your co-author, everybody's looking at each other like, oh, yeah, that makes perfect sense. When you show it to people who are a little farther afield, they can tell you. I don't know what this means. I misunderstood this sentence. I I don't know what this I don't know what you're talking about here. Can you give a can you give an example, right? So that's a lovely way that people can really help each other out uh, just by reading each other's drafts and giving feedback as a reader. Like here's where I was confused. I really like this sentence. This was really clear to me. So I mean this 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 brings me to the uh, first off I mean just as a side comment I think it's a wonderful use of the affordances of the technology now that we've discovered yeah. over the past 5 years um the Google Doc and everyone getting a chance um it just show it goes to show you know what what, what is now possible that mm-hmm. everyone is so you know fluent with and proficient with at the moment but w- what you what you do bring up for us uh, at around minute 50 in our interview is the <laughs> writing <laughs> the writing workshop <laughs> which is indeed the, the title of the book and um, I do want to also turn uh, to that as a topic uh, with with this brief transition because it's something that really gets got me thinking while I was reading the book because I do think that it's it's becoming quite clear to you know ever wider circles in academia that something's not quite going right you know yeah. and um, it's showing up in all different kinds of places um, one of those places which is the focus of your book is you know writing writing anxiety and so on um, it would seem that you know more and more people are starting to realize that you know there's an awareness now that the academics daily tasks, things along the lines of teaching, communicating, managing, leading, mm-hmm. you know, these are all the things that academics are not trained to do, <laughs> right. <laughs> which, which is, you know, putting people yeah. in to start with in very difficult situations, never minding the competitive environment in which they find themselves. And, um, the expectations are often left somehow, you know, vaguely implied in ways that allow for huge amounts of interpretation. And obviously, very many people end up with different sorts of results on what exactly those expectations are. I suppose what I'm getting at is it would appear to me, though, that there's been, I'm putting myself a little bit on the line, over the past decade, a a bit of a shift going on in perspectives where there's an awareness now arising and being spread by very many people consciously as to look, there is this problem, something really should be done about this. And and your book, unless I'm putting it entirely wrong contest, not context, not only really belongs here in this awareness raising, but it offers concrete and practical advice. I'm thinking, for example, of the workshop, your communities of practice, as you call it. Yeah, well, I didn't, I didn't coin the term communities of practice at all. That's a very old term uh, from the educational psychology and social psychology literature from the 1990s. Um, But yeah, yeah, I, I agree with everything you say. It's clear. 
it's clear that something's not working, particularly with PhD training. I think I start at the beginning of the book by noting that, uh, at least in the United States, I actually think it's true. I think it's true in not just in North America, but in Europe and Australia. I'm not sure. I'm not sure about other parts of the world, but the research on Europe and Australia and North America all seems to show that um, doctoral students, students in PhD programs are about six times more likely to have um, moderate to severe anxiety and depression than equally educated, same age people in the general population who are not in PhD programs. And so that's very worrying, you know, uh, when, and this is research where people take the same, the researchers take the same measure of the same anxiety and depression measures, and they give them to PhD students and to people who are not PhD students. And when they control for things like standard, standard of living and education level and income and age and things like that, it really does seem like it's a lot worse. Like the mental health situation in doctoral programs is much worse than it should be. And of course, you know, it, correlation is not causation and maybe people with anxiety and depression are just six times likelier to enter PhD programs than everybody else. But it seems likely that there's something about the way academia is structured right now that is really just not good for people's mental health and well-being. Uh, so yeah, then, then what do you do about it? What do we do about it? So this, the writing workshop is one approach that people can take to kind of creating a supportive community uh, for themselves, for their peers. Uh, it started out as a workshop that I was leading for graduate students, but there's also a model of cascading mentorship where senior graduate students or postdocs might lead this kind of writing workshop for junior peers. Also extremely useful, and there's uh, some very good research on longitudinal studies with PhD students by David Feldman's group, showing that uh, cascading mentorship is one of the few things that really does make a measurable difference in PhD students' learning, their skill development over time. So students, PhD students who are in a lab or in a group like a writing workshop with a postdoc or senior PhD student who is really engaged with them, who's talking with them about these issues, who's answering their questions, who's reading drafts of their work and giving them feedback. Um, those junior PhD students who have that kind of support from a senior peer or a near peer uh, are four times more likely to show positive growth trajectories uh, over their PhD career than students who don't have that kind of support. So I am a big fan of people creating writing communities and meeting regularly to give each other, to work together and give each other feedback. Um, I think it's really, really useful and it doesn't cost any money. And we have good research data to show that it, that it works. Yeah. Speaking of which, you uh, also mentioned in the, um, in the epilogue that there are randomized control trials going on. And since it was 2019-ish, I, I wonder if you could give yeah. us a, a, fla a flash look at anything that you might have found. Um, sure, yeah, we finished, yeah, we, we finished a randomized control trial, a small one of the writing workshop, and it was published in Innovative Higher Education. And I can, you know, I'm, I'm happy to send it to you. It's open, um, Okay, well it's then I can definitely access. I can 
I can link that in the blog post so that people can also have a look. Yeah, yeah sure. Yeah, sorry, I, I won't do it right now. I'm tempted on this, on this. I'm sitting at my computer right now, so I was very tempted to like pull up the link and send it to you in the chat, but I, we could do that after after we're done talking. No, li- um, listeners will definitely be able to look through that then afterwards. That's perfect, yeah. Yeah, um, for could, sure. I'll could send you, you maybe just give us a, yeah, oh, yeah. okay, so, great. Um, so that study that we did, so the, the study I mentioned a minute ago, which I can also send you a link to, uh, was not done by me. The one showing that cascading mentorship uh, helps people a lot. I can send you that one. But the one we did, which was a randomized controlled trial of the writing workshop, uh, was pretty small and it was pretty brief. So we had uh, 32 participants, so 16 per condition. And one group was on, uh, we and we had them for a 10-week period over the summer. So one group uh, for the first five weeks, the first half of the summer, they were on a waiting list. And for the second five weeks, they were participating in the writing workshop. Uh, the other group was participating in the writing workshop for the first half of the summer. And then for the second half of the summer, they were in a maintenance group where they met with, uh, not with me anymore, but for another five weeks with senior graduate students and continued the writing workshop stuff on their own. So the intervention was a total of 30 hours. It was two three-hour meetings a week for five weeks, so six hours a week for five weeks. We did all the stuff described in the writing workshop book. Uh, So if you read the book, you'll understand all the material we covered. And then um, the outcome measures were measures of uh, self-efficacy. How did people feel about writing? How confident were they? Uh, did they their agreement or disagreement with statements, statements like, I'm good at writing, uh, and made it clear this is academic. We mean academic writing, like scholarly writing, writing grant, grant proposals and manuscripts and stuff. So it was like, I, I'm good at writing. I enjoy writing. I know how to express my, I know how to describe my research in a way that non-experts can understand. I am good at giving constructive feedback on other scholars writing, things like that. Um, so people's feelings about writing, their confidence in themselves, their beliefs about it. Uh, and, and on those measures, we got huge, huge changes, like very large changes that, uh, we had to use scientific notation to express the Bayes factors. That's how big the Bayes factors were, big, big numbers. Um, so extremely successful in that way. But um, five weeks, the other things we wanted to look at, we didn't see much of a change in in five weeks. So um, actually, it was kind of funny. One of the things we looked at was writing quality. And the way that we tried to assess writing quality was that uh, people submitted <laughs> This is just this is just a story about the difficulty of doing research with no budget. Uh, people submitted a piece of writing, and it was like a research. It had to be a, a piece of their own original research writing that was maybe five or six pages long. And then we sent these to independent scorers to rate these writing samples, and on a ten criteria that were like, how well is the how, how comprehensive is the literature review? How well is the hypothesis, are the hypotheses grounded in the literature? How plausible are the hypotheses? Is the data to be collected uh, appropriate? That kind of thing. Um, and, and actually, the because we pre-registered, we, we pre-registered this study, we registered all the analyses ahead of time and all the measures ahead of time. Um, so when we went ahead and 
collected these data and analyzed the writing, it looked like the intervention made people's writing worse. Uh-oh. And we were like, what? <laughs> how could it possibly like, I could, I could understand if it didn't make a difference, but like, how could it literally make their writing worse? So then we went back and looked at what had happened. And what, what it turned out was that because we didn't have a budget to pay the participants for this writing sample, um, we just allowed them to upload what a, a writing sample that they had. So we said, if you have a writing sample, if you have something you've written about your own research in the past, you can upload it uh, as long as it's your own work. And writing is hard and people don't want to write a new four or five page, you know, research statement. So they mostly uploaded things that they had used before, they, things that they had submitted for fellowships or things that they had submitted for their concentration exam or something like that. And then um, halfway through the summer and again at the end of the summer, we gave them another chance to upload writing and they could either uh, they could either just leave it and leave the same sample that they had uploaded in the first place, or they could revise the sample, or they could upload something completely new. And what we found was that at the beginning, people pretty much uploaded things they already had, pieces of writing they already had around. These were very polished. These were probably these were things that had been submitted, so they'd probably gone through many stages, you know, many rounds of revision and gotten feedback from the advisor, and you know, they were very nice and polished up and ready to go. But the people who went through the writing workshop intervention became much more likely to write something new. So they started new pieces of writing about research that was ongoing or research that was new projects. And of course, the new pieces of writing that they produced were not polished, right? They were early stage new projects that they were writing about. But the really informative bit there is that they wanted to write. (laughs) Yes, yes, exactly. If we had, if I, if I designed a follow-up study, I would make sure to measure, you know, does the person voluntarily produce new writing (laughs) or did they just re-upload the same piece of writing that they used at the beginning? Yeah. So the reason that, that their writing appeared to get worse was because they were doing new writing and the new writing was rough. It was, you know, not polished like the old stuff. So I consider that a win, even though officially the intervention made their writing worse. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'll, we'll, we'll just brush over that one. I mean, you you could write, you could write that into a discussion section in such a way that it comes across. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, we did. We did. And then there were a couple of other things we looked at that weren't, uh, I can't remember. There were, there were some other things that we didn't get very, um, big so it didn't move it didn't change their anxiety levels it didn't change their overall um happiness levels so we had some well-being subjective well, well-being measures on there maybe just because five weeks is not long enough to move the needle on something like that um also i thought it was pretty funny everybody at the beginning of the summer was the least happy no matter what condition they were assigned to in the middle of the summer, they were medium happy. And at the end of the summer, they were the happiest. <laughs> so it really didn't matter whether they did the intervention in the first half of the summer or the second half of the summer. They were just exhausted at the end of the academic year and much happier by the end of the summer. <laughs> which, uh, remind me again, which was the parameter that was off the map that just... Oh, self-efficacy. So their writing right, beliefs, right. their writing beliefs, mm. uh, their quest, their, you know, uh, things like, are you good at writing? Do you enjoy writing? Do you feel confident about your ability to write in a way that people can understand? Things like that. 
See, that doesn't surprise me at all. I mean, I have no data to work off of, but I mean, I've been doing this for a number of years and, and but one of my major aims is, is also peer mentoring and um, awareness raising generally, you know, showing people what's going on in text and, 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 and the feedback that I just constantly get anecdotally, uh, of course, is, is that just, just what you say? I mean, this like, oh, wow, you know, like, this is, I can handle this. I see, you know, the levers now. I know what to do. Um, it's it's just so terrible to see scientists who are so serious about their research and to, you know, stumble over writing or to not know what what it can allow them to do, how, how smoothly it can dovetail into their work and what it can contribute to their work and, and so on and so forth. Yeah. Luckily, self-efficacy is one of the easiest things to change <laughs> with just a little bit of intervention, uh, which is what you're seeing and what we saw. So um, people, you can make a really big difference in people's uh, happiness and sense of self-confidence and um, willingness to write and their comfort with getting feedback and giving feedback and their productivity levels. Um, so that's great. That's great that yeah. the thing, yeah. such a positive thing is pretty easy to change. And I mean, these are all major factors in how successful somebody's publishing career is. I mean, just the absolutely. productivity alone, you know, yeah, I mean, um, absolutely. But one, of, one of the things that comes out of the workshop uh, through the book anyway, I, I'm guessing that if you had written this book about 15 years ago when the workshop mm -hmm. began, you wouldn't necessarily have had all the tricks and different structuring mechanisms and mm. ways of organizing yourselves and, and, and planning methods and so on. Um, I'm guessing, uh, please do step in yeah. if I'm off there. And, and, and it would see that one of the, seem that one of the wonderful things to come out of any intervention of this sort, if other people wanted to replicate it, the book is a wonderful way of figuring out how you could do that is that you come up with these great ideas and that you find fix after fix or method after method or hack after hack. Yeah, for sure. I, yeah, if we had written it, if I'd written it 15 years ago, uh, uh, yeah, I don't know what I would have written. I'm not sure I had anything to say 15 years ago. You know, we had this idea to get together and have a writing workshop and read books like the books that you feature on your podcast, you know, books about academic writing. Um, and we read, I've read a lot of books on academic writing over the years. And over time, I, there were some that I liked more and some that I liked less. And then, you know, I, I think I started out being interested in the style and mechanics uh, kind of stuff, the sentence level, paragraph level, organization kind of issues. And then it turned out, um, so that's now, the, those are the end chapters in the book now, sort of like eight, seven, eight, nine, ten, or eight, nine, ten. Um, but then it became clear that students wanted, PhD students wanted to take a step back and just talk about the the overall structure of the main things we write. So uh, an empirical paper, a kind of introduction method results discussion paper, like let's take that apart and think about what the different parts of that need to look like. What about a grant proposal? What about a presentation? So there are four chapters in the middle about those things. You know, how to write a, how to write a literature review. That's a big one. How to Figuring out how to let it write a literature review is a big uh, hurdle for new PhD students, it's usually something you have to do in the first or second year of a PhD program, and people find it absolutely overwhelming. Um, so the middle chapters ended up being like, here's how you write a literature review, here's how you write a manuscript, here's how you give a presentation, 
here's how you write a grant proposal. And then we, we backed up even further, you know, in terms of perspective to see these bigger problems, like how do you think about writing? How do you overcome your anxiety? What do you do about the negative self-talk TV, we call it, right? The voices in your head saying, this is stupid. This is a bad idea. This is not going to work. Uh, how do you how do you deal with all of that, which are really much bigger question, much bigger picture kinds of problems? And so now I mean, you the, do have a knack, yeah. you do have a knack for cool little names for things. <laughs> I mean, the ninja writing we talked about, uh, huddling penguins show up. I'll leave yeah. that for the readers to discover for themselves. It's quite yes. central, actually. Yes. And uh, yeah, now the uh, in what was it? Negativity TV. I forget exactly. Negative self talk TV. Yeah. There it is. Negative self talk TV. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> wonderful stuff. Um, yeah, the literature review puts me actually in mind of. Uh, one of the things I definitely also wanted to com- comment on when it comes to the book is um, I always, I'm also a great reader of, uh, well, I mean, I do the podcast of, of, you know, writing guides and, and other things concerning uh, writing studies. And I'm always really appreciative when somebody tries as, as, as much as the medium will allow to show what's actually going on um, when the writing is happening. And, and that happens, for example, in your literature review chapter wonderfully. I, I mean, I'm thinking, for instance, of the classic William Zinza, who, who shows a page of, you know, one of his typescript pages and says, this, this was draft 23. And you're like, Oh God, <laughs> you, know, you see so much scribbling on it. Or, or Stephen King and his famous book there on, on, uh, on the writing craft or on craft, I forget exactly how it's called, but he, 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 he walks through, you know, a scene in a story and, and it just appears for us. And, and in your literature review chapter, you flesh it out for us. It, it literally moves from notes to finished prod, uh, product. And, and that's one of those wonderful experiences, I think, for people who, you know, are trying to get in touch with what is the literature review? What do I have to do in it? Oh, that's that's great. I'm glad that you liked it. It's um, yeah, the literature review is a thing that once you get past it, you forget how overwhelming it can be. And students are really overwhelmed by the task of doing a literature review. They often feel like they have to read everything that's ever been written on the topic and they have to know it really, really well. And of course, everything that's ever been written on your topic is far more than you could possibly read in your lifetime. And so you have to start making decisions about what you're going to read and what you're not going to read and how much time you're going to spend reading it. And that feels very scary. All of it feels very scary. And so there's, yeah, there's a whole chapter to help sort of take people by the hand and walk them through the process of a literature review, because it's, it's extremely anxiety provoking from what I've observed. Yeah, no, I've I've observed much the same. That's that's uh, that and introductions are one of those major areas. But definitely, and, and really, the two cross over very often, depending on the field. Um, also, when you talk about reading now, I mean, there's so many. We won't obviously get to all of them, but talk about not getting to everything. <laughs> but one of the things that jumped out at me uh, also was the strategic reading because it becomes also apparent that this is indirect advice as well to the writers because a writer of course is, you know, laboring over a text, an article or whatever, or a chapter, you know, for months or years. And to, to, to realize that you are also being strategically read is something that can be quite helpful because I mean, it's helpful to your 
process. You know, you realize that you don't need to create perfection, um, but it's also helpful for your product because that's something to incorporate into it so that people can, in your sense of strategy, read it right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And certainly if you're writing, this is the big advantage of like the introduction method results discussion format, right? Is that for science is that everybody knows where to find the information they're looking for. So, you know, you want to put your literature review in the introduction, you want to put your concise statement of what you did in this study at the end of the introduction. (laughs) You know, you want to, knowing exactly where the reader is going to look for various types of information helps you a lot as a writer because you know where to put the information so that they can find it. And you're right. I think it takes the pressure off too, to realize sometimes when I'm, you know, when my students are writing and they, they seem to be really, uh, tying themselves in knots over the exact wording of, you know, something in the introduction or the discussion, I say like, come on, you know, people are only going to skim this. <laughs> like, do your best. <laughs> do your best. Take your best shot. We'll send it to the reviewers and uh, see if they bounce it back to us. Yeah. God, <laughs> that's wonderful. Um, I would like to also say one last thing on the book. Um, it is open access, as I stated at the beginning. It's very much though a beautiful book to look at. Clearly, um, this is something that a lot of time was taken on so that it comes across in a visually attractive way. Um, it's something I would also recommend people you know, have the money or have the interest to think about uh, actually purchasing, which it's available for. Um, but again, the tips are really what stick out in so many areas in the book as as one of the outgrowths as i said before of clearly your long year collaboration in this this very productive writing workshop uh, there's so many to to point to the one i would point out which i find hugely helpful is the reverse outlining oh absolutely um, perhaps yeah. you could say a quick word about that and if there was another that you felt ah oh, we've missed then no reverse outlining free. is is like the single most useful strategy and i can't take credit for it i i learned about it from rachel Cayley, who writes the um explorations of style blog uh and i think she's just published a book on academic writing but she's she's in Toronto, I believe, somewhere in Canada, and she runs a like a writing center for graduate students at a big university. And she identified um, reverse outlining, which is this wonderful process, and it's the best. So there are two problems in writing. There are two big points where people have get stuck. One is at the beginning and one is in the middle. (laughs) So at the beginning, it's hard to get started. It's hard to overcome the barrier to starting. It's hard to stare at a blank screen. And the answer to that is the ninja writing, the writing little and often, the free writing, you know, Peter Elbow's um, 1973 uh, process approach to writing, that whole school of free writing where you sit down and just write anything and you don't judge it or evaluate it and you don't cross anything out. You just sit down and write, you know, I don't know why I'm doing this. Barbara told me to, it seems like such a stupid idea. I don't have anything to say, blah, blah, blah. Um, But that stuff is great for getting going for when you're having trouble starting and you don't know what to write. If you can uh, write little and often give yourself permission to write something bad. So lower your standards and think, I'm just going to write a terrible draft. Can you do that? Sure, I can do that. I can write a terrible draft. I write terrible drafts all the time. 
So that's the key to getting started. But then the other place people get stuck, and this is where reverse outlining comes in, is they get stuck in the middle. So after you have completed a draft and you don't know where to go from there, you don't know how to revise it. Maybe you've given it to your advisor and your advisor or a reviewer, a set of reviewers, or some friend who's given you feedback gives you feedback that's not particularly helpful, right? Like they say, I remember my advisor when I was a PhD student once said, it needs to be both narrower and broader. <laughs> and I thought, great, what is that supposed to mean? How can I do that? Or they'll say, your argument doesn't quite gel. Like people aren't good at at identifying exactly what the problem is. People read people will read your writing and kind of like it or not like it, but they're not necessarily great at identifying what you should change. And and writers often find themselves in the position of having completed a draft, having it having given it to someone for feedback, or maybe not. Maybe you've just completed a draft and not given it to anybody for feedback, and then you don't know what to do. You don't know how to start revising it. And this is where Reverse outlining is so great. So reverse outlining is a process where you go through your draft and for each paragraph, you identify the one sentence that kind of sums up the main idea you're trying to say in this paragraph. Maybe it's the first sentence of the paragraph, maybe it's somewhere else, or maybe you didn't, maybe you realize reading the paragraph that you don't really have one, that you haven't really written a point sentence for that paragraph. So go ahead and write one. You go through the whole thing, paragraph by paragraph, until you've got one sentence for each paragraph that kind of you've either highlighted or written a sentence that sums up the main idea you're trying to convey in each paragraph. And then you just take just those sentences and you transfer those to another document or you erase everything, you delete everything that's not just those sentences. And then you've got basically a sentence outline of your argument. You've got, I think of it like an x-ray, the way an x-ray, a medical x-ray takes away all the, it just shows your bones. It doesn't show soft tissue. It doesn't show your blood vessels and fat and skin and flesh and everything. It just shows the bones. It just shows your the structure. So this outline that you've created, these sentence by sentence outline of the whole thing is like the skeleton. It's like the x-ray that shows the bones. And if you just read that, you're able to see a lot of things, right? You're able to see where the argument is redundant, where it skips steps. You know, you can find the underpants gnomes who are jumping from phase one steel underpants to phase three profit. And there's something, there's a big question mark in between. Uh, you can see when it's going off on tangents and going into areas you don't actually want to focus on. It's just super, super helpful. So this is like a great tool for someone who is in a revision process where they've written a certain amount of stuff and they want to make it better, but they don't know how to make it better. I always, always recommend reverse outlining because you can work just on the outline, uh, change that around and then fill in the flesh again, you know, ch change the structure around to be the bone structure that you want and then go back in and fill in the flesh. And it also just seems so much more productive, despite the fact that Absolutely. some people will be like, yeah, you're supposed to do the outline ahead of time. But I mean, you need something to outline, don't you, really? <laughs> right, yeah, because since people usually don't figure out what the argument is until they write it, <laughs> you can you can try outlining ahead of time, but then the draft probably won't stick to the outline very closely. Right, yeah. Or you but, could just call the outlining ahead of time a form of writing, and then you're sure. writing, and then, yeah, whatever. <laughs> Absolutely. It, you know, in reverse, I also am a big fan of outlines, you know, reverse outlines that you've created from a working draft or 
you know, are outlines that you've made ahead of time, uh, particularly sentence outlines, not topic outlines. Not So topic outline just says what you plan to talk about in the various, you know, sections, but a sentence outline actually says, you know, what claims are you going to make? Like, what is, what, what are you going to say? What are the statements you're going to make in each section? Um, that's such a nice document to have to, for example, give, to get feedback. So let's say you're a PhD student, you've written a draft, you've reverse outlined it. So now you have this outline based on your draft and the outline sort of captures the whole argument. That's a great thing to take to your PhD advisor and ask them for feedback on because the outline of the argument only takes five minutes to read. You can sit there in the office while the advisor reads that outline and gives you feedback on it. If you give them an entire draft, you probably have to give them two weeks to find time to read it and write down comments and get back to you. And I know a lot of people in PhD programs whose advisors don't get back to them in two weeks, you know, who take months to get back to them. So a, another great thing about an outline, including reverse outlines, is that you can ask people for feedback on them and people can read them very quickly and give you feedback on the ideas and the structure of the argument without getting bogged down in the actual sentence level, sort of word level issues. That's great. Feedback to yourself, feedback from others. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, this and this is what the book is loaded with. That's why I wanted to really just uh, <laughs> brush upon that anyway. But Thank you very much for that, Barbara. That is uh, Barbara Seneca and her book, The Writing Workshop, Write More, Write Better, Be Happier in Academia, is out since 2019. I'm Daniel Shea, and this is goodbye from me to Barbara. Goodbye. Goodbye, Daniel. Thank you so much. And this is goodbye to all of you. Bye-bye, and until next time here on Scholarly Communication.